Well, good morning, Creekside. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors or elders here at Creekside, and I have the joy and privilege of bringing you the last sermon before Christmas, because as was mentioned earlier, Christmas Eve will have a special service. There won't be more of our traditional service like we're doing today. It'll just be a time in the Word and a time of music, and we'll do the candlelight thing, and toddlers and fire is always fun. And so it's actually a really special time together where just as families we worship God, it helps to center our minds on the beauty of the scriptures and the Christmas gift. And it's, it's one of my favorite uh, services of the year that comes amidst what's usually a pretty tumultuous season, especially if you're parents and you got the little kids and the excitement and all the running around. So I'm told that, that when speaking, one should open with a joke to, to build camaraderie with the audience and to, to kind of lighten the mood a little bit. And I've got a really good one. And, and it's about this pastor and this rabbi and this priest going to a grocery store. And they're checking out, and they start debating what the proper sack should be for their groceries. Should they choose plastic, or should they choose paper, and which would be most honoring to God? And, and I'd love to tell you the punchline, but Steve and Dave told me it was sacrilegious, and so I couldn't. <laughs> Man, I got two reactions very distinct on that, as you would expect. But uh, as we're coming to Christmas time, you know, we're told that Christmas time is this time of hope and it's this time of joy. And we have all these traditions in music and song and movies and stories and lore that tells us it's this time of year where everyone's just going to act a little nicer. And, and the ones that aren't will wake up on Christmas morning like Ebenezer and realize the error of their ways and they'll change completely and they'll buy Tiny Tim's family the turkey and, and it'll all go well for them that everything's supposed to turn out for the good. But what if that's not the reality that you're experiencing, right? What if you're in a place like mentally and it's just been a a rough year perhaps, that you're feeling run down, you've got too much to do, there's worries and cares that that are dragging your spirit down. Perhaps this year you've lost someone and this is the first Christmas season without them and it feels heavy and dark. Maybe inflation is killing your family budget. Maybe you just learned you had a family budget because of that, right? That, that the truth is life is hard. People are still jerks, even at Christmas time. And there is no deranged elf man running around full of Christmas joy so that it's all going to end in this big Christmas carol at the end. That, that there's something about that, that like fake Christmas lore that can kind of almost make it worse, right? Because we're not experiencing that. And if you're finding yourself here and floundering and burdened this season, I want you to let you know you're not alone. I'll be honest, I struggled with this sermon because I'm busy, I got a lot of irons in the fire, I'm distracted, there's lots of stuff every day popping up, coming my way, and I'm tired. I've had a long, stressful, difficult year, and I'm just fatigued from it all, and and Christmas is adding to it. And to be honest, to put the cherry on top of the stupid Sunday, like last week, And we're done. So. One, two, one, two. All right, I'm back. That's your son. That is my son. We'll deal with this later. So. Um, last week, the flu ripped through our family like bacon through a duck. And we were all just like miserable and sick. And, and like last week was the time that I had in my mind that I was going to put a lot of prep time into the sermon. 
And at first, I was thinking, well, I'm going to be home from work for a few days, so maybe it'll be okay, and I'll have extra time. But my, my head felt like it was full of mud, and I'm going, I am not going to try and interpret God's word in a condition like this, because it's just not going to go well. So, and as I read through the text we're going to talk about today, I read through it multiple times, and it just wasn't inspiring me, it wasn't coming together, and I was starting to get mad at Jake and Steve for the stupid dark and light theme that they picked, because it wasn't making any sense to me. And I was starting to dread today, and I thought, I'm just going to read the text, look at you all like it's obvious, make some horrible moralistic application, we'll all go home, and, and it'll be Christmas time. But... As Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, even when we are faithless, he is faithful. And so, one cold December morning when I'd gotten up early to work on this before work, God opened my eyes to see like what he wanted to say to his people. The, the connections just started flowing, and it was like a dam had broken. And I'm grateful for that. So if anything in this message is terrible and doesn't connect, and you can hold the faithless man accountable for that, because... I was letting fatigue and busyness and, and distraction win. And those are often the things that keep us from God and keep us from the Word of God. And if anything in this message is coherent and helpful and impactful to you, credit the faithful God who meets us where we are and delivers us no matter our circumstances. And my desire is by the end, you'll feel okay actually that that like mystical, storytelling, magical Christmas isn't real because you'll know what is real and hopeful about Christmas, and that makes all the difference. And you'll see how it really is a season of hope. So we're going to dive into God's Word. If you want to, while I'm, I'm talking here for a minute, turn to, it's going to be an easy book to find. The start of the Scriptures, Genesis 1, verse 1. So if you open to the front of your Bible, you should find it. For those of you that are new to the Bible, <clears throat> I want to tell you that what you hold in your hands isn't a book. It's actually a library. It's a library of 66 books written over more than 1,500 years by more than 40 authors on three continents in three languages in a variety of styles. There's poetry and history and prophecy and gospel and letters. But despite all of that crazy variety, it is the coherent story of one person. It's the story of Jesus and his work on and in the world. And so as we study today, we're going to be mainly looking at two scriptures. I want you to have a visual in your mind. And that visual is that the Bible is like a big lake. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be like a stone skipping across that lake. We're going to touch down in a couple of places. And where we touch down on the surface of that lake, we're going to see the beauty and depth of the scriptures that God has for us. But also that it's this consistent, coherent story. And then at the end, we'll look at a third landing spot, which is where we're at today. And I hope to be able to draw the line that this is a straight line and that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if you'd kindly stand with me as we read through Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. You can go ahead and have a seat, and I'll, I'll pray for us as we get going. 
Lord, I thank you that you are a faithful God and that you meet us where we're at and that you help us in our struggles and that we can trust in you in that. So I pray that you, you open our eyes to see what you have for us this morning despite my, my weakness to deliver it and, uh, and help us all to leave here with the true joy and spirit and happiness of Christmas in our hearts and this great gift you've given us in your son. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, as we go through our texts today, I want to point out five aspects of God that you can see in our text. The first is that God is eternal. The Bible starts off, in the beginning, God. There is no, here's where God came from. There is no, here's how God was created. There is no, let me tell you what came together. No, God is eternal. He is preexistent and preeminent. And and he doesn't experience time in the same way that we do. We'll we'll come back to this cross-reference a little bit later, but Peter tells us in 2 Peter, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. That God lives outside of time and experiences differently than we do, and this demonstrates his power and his holiness and his separateness from creation. Number two, God is creative. That this all-powerful God, out of nothing, he creates. It's a pure creation. There's no muse. There's no copyright infringement. There's not, he didn't even make it out of thin air. There was no air, right? That God, out of nothing, creates the heavens and the earth, and there's water involved. And it, the Bible tells us it's unformed. It's like a craftsman bringing his materials together to, to work his art. And at the beginning, we're told that the earth is desolate and dark, that there's this void that's terrifying and there's this nothingness. And then, it's not all in this passage, but if you follow the creation account through, we're not going to look at the whole thing today, but you follow the creation account through and you look at the world around you, God is amazingly creative. and He loves variety and he has this imagination that's incredible. You look at the animal kingdom or the insect kingdom or the natural beauty that's all around us. We worship a creative God. And we're told in the creation account that, that humankind, that we are the pinnacle of that creation, made in his image and likeness. That's why we love things like music and art, and we love creating ourselves because we're reflecting that bit of God. And then into this creation, number three, God brings light. It's the first thing that God brings into his creation, and it changes everything. The light exposes the world. The light shows the contours. And it's a truism as you go throughout scriptures and throughout the Bible, where God is, he just brings the light and an illumination, a revealing of what is hidden. And as he brings this light, number four, God is generous to all. They were told that God saw that the light was good. Good for whom? God didn't need the light. He just made the heavens and the earth without so much as a table lamp right? He didn't need the light. No, he gives his creation what it needs. Light brings life. It was one of our first basic scientific understandings of our world as humankind that light brings about, that drives primary production at a physical level, that it's photosynthesis for plants and algae and plankton, that the the food chain runs on light, that it brings warmth and energy. God calls the light good because he knows what his creation needs and he gives it generously. We're told this for all the inhabitants of the earth. Jesus in Matthew 5 says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. 
that good or wicked, man or beast, fish or fowl, the light benefits them all, and like a master craftsman pleased with his work, God declares it good. And finally, number five, God separates dark from light. We'd see that here in the creation account, that, that you know, there's something inside of humans that, that we're terrified of the dark. We've got countless stories and legends based on this idea that, that the light, the dark holds the unknown. What could be lurking out there? We have this advice, don't go down that dark alley, right? Is it because the alley is more urine-soaked in the nighttime than the daytime? No, it's because there's probably some creeper hiding behind the recycle bin, right? Don't go down there. And as humans, I think this doesn't necessarily have the same impact it might have once done for us because we've gotten really good at creating artificial light to chase away the darkness and reveal what's around us. In some sense, I think we've, we've become almost masters of the dark where we feel like it's not as scary as it used to be. But the truth is, our light's weak. It doesn't compare to the sun. Batteries die, bulbs burn out, even the, the LEDs we were supposed to be able to give to our grandkids. I've replaced plenty of the stupid bulbs in my house, right? That, that Ask yourself this. If the electrical grid went down tomorrow and wasn't coming back, would you feel differently about the dark? I think that we would. But God in his goodness, he divides the two. That there's health and order in this. That, that just like in the animal kingdom, like some critters are critters of the daytime, some critters are nocturnal and critters of the night. And this is one more demonstration of God's power. That he wasn't a God that just like threw the creation out there, that he still has authority and command over his creation. And he can set things in order. So now we're going to skip ahead about 4,000 years to the gospel. So we're going to go to John 1. If you use the flip method, it's one of the first books in the New Testament. The Gospels come first, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's right before Acts and Romans. Those are fairly good-sized books. It's about, oh, three-quarters of the way through your Bible, I would say, two-thirds to three-quarters. So as an illustration of how clouded my vision was in like understanding the connection between these scriptures and, and the this level of distraction I was having, I'm going to read you the first three words. In the beginning... John starts, I did not make the connection between these two verses. Like, that's on me, right? So, John's going to echo the creation event for us. So, I'm going to start off, we're going to go 1 through 18. I'm going to start off reading verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John echoes this creation event, and we're going to find out something explicitly here that was hinted at in the creation account. We didn't read it, but if you went through and you read the sixth day of creation, Genesis 1.26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. See, it's one of the like, difficult things of the Bible that we worship one God, just the one. And yet, we're, we're told there's God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That there's something that goes on with God that's, that's tough to fathom that we call the Trinity. And in this triune God, these three like, parts of God coexist and yet it's still just one God. It's a complicated thing. And if you struggle with this, I'm going to tell you, 
not only are you not alone, like the best theological minds throughout the ages have struggled with how to like understand and how to explain this concept. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning other than to point it out just because we've got other texts and other things we're getting through this morning. But there's lots of good stuff out there on this. There's also lots of terrible stuff out there on this. Like The Shack. If you've ever read that book, please throw it in the garbage because it's a terrible like representation of, of the Trinity. There's also things like the people came up with that are called like modalism, where, where God is like Superman. Yeah, he's Clark Kent and Superman, but he's never the same at the same time. And it's just, there's a lot. So, like, as Christians, we should wrestle through these big, difficult ideas and come to an understanding of them. But if you need help with that, like, that's something the elders would love to help you see clearly, or as clearly as we can. Because I don't think, I think it's one of those things we'll never, never truly grasp as, as well as we should until we meet God face to face. But having said all that, um, what we're going to find out here in John is the same God that was in creation is, is also here in John. So John starts out pointing out that God is eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, God's, or, <coughs> excuse me, he's going to call Jesus the Word here. And he's saying, like, Jesus embodies God's word in the sense that the Old Testament was the law and the prophets. That's, that's kind of how they referred to it. And Jesus came to fulfill the law. He lived that perfect, sinless life that, that maximized and fulfilled God's word. He also fulfilled all the predictions of the prophets and who he was and where he was born and how he came to be. That he embodies the word of God so much that he is the word of God. And that he was there in the beginning, Jesus Christ eternal. We're also told that God, once again, is creative, that not that everything that was made was made through, some translations will say, by him, and that nothing that was made was not made. Nothing, that was, nothing that's made is made without him. Like, like, God is over all of creation, and he's creative. In verse 4, we're told that God brings light, and the light brings life, just like we were told in the creation account. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then with this light, there's something I need to deal with. It's a textual issue that shows up in verse 5, where it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, that's the ESV. Depending on your translation, that verse will come out differently. The NASB will say that the darkness did not grasp the light. And then in the footnote, it'll say, or it could be translated overpower. The NIV will say that the darkness did not overcome the light. And then it goes the other way. And in the footnote, will say, did not understand the, the light. And then I like the King James Version because it says, the darkness comprehended it not. So there's this thing that goes on here where, well, it's like, which is it? is it? Is it, like, understood or is it overcome? And if you go back to the original language, it's a compound word, catalambeno. I have no idea if I said that right, but I said it fast and with authority. So as far as you know, it's correct. <laughs> and it means to lay hold of, like to seize. The same word shows up 15 places in the Bible, all in the New Testament, Five times in the Gospels, three times in the book of Acts, and seven times in the epistles. Here's some examples that you might, that are pretty famous parts of Scripture that you might recognize. 
In Mark 9, there's a demon that seizes a man's son and slams him around on the ground. In Romans 9, the Gentiles attained righteousness. In Ephesians 3, Paul's asking, can you comprehend the breadth and width and depth of God's love? In Philippians 3, Paul says, I want to lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. And then later on in the book of John, in chapter 12, John writes this, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And the one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. See, the darkness is always trying to, to sneak in, to creep in, to like suppress the light. But that's not the way it works. Darkness does not push back on light. Light pushes out the darkness. Have you ever gone outside with a flashlight and turned it on and the darkness comes and grabs it? No. That's not the way that light works. Although that's what darkness wants to do, it has no ability to do that. So as we're reading this passage, we're we're trying to ask ourselves, well, which is it? Is the the darkness not get it? Does it not understand it? Or is the darkness not not able to overpower it? And obviously the translators of the various translations struggled with this very thing. And so I'm going to argue in a way that it's actually both. That if we think of like understanding something, that is mental mastery over it. We have master's degrees for people that have studied a subject for a long time, right? That there's this mastery over something that's mental. Overcoming or seizing is like this physical mastery over something. And the best example I can give for this is, is what happened on the cross, that Jesus willingly went to the cross. He took a brutal beating with a whip embedded with bits of metal or teeth or stone that ripped chunks of flesh out of his back. He then had a rough-hewn, heavy, wooden crossbeam laid across his torn-up bare shoulders. He was then forced to march up a hill in the desert carrying his own crossbeam. And when he got there, they put nails through the most sensitive nerve centers on his body, lifted him up, and he died a brutal horrible death, and he chose that for our good, to take care of our sin. And on that day, the darkness thought it had won. But it did not understand what Jesus was doing. It did not comprehend it. And then three days later, the light burst out of the tomb when Jesus came back to life, conquering Satan's sin and death, and the darkness had not physically mastered it, that it's really both. So as you come to parts of the text like this, that maybe there's a translational thing, sometimes like that translation choice that the authors made was driven by theology. This one, I think they just struggled saying there's not, I can't completely capture what the original language says here. So that, I hope that's helpful to you, but that's how I understood this. And then in verses six through eight, we're going to be told about John the Baptist. He writes, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Other other places in the scripture, Jesus calls John the greatest man that ever lived in Matthew 11. And I think it's because his sole, singular, driving purpose of his life was to tell everyone about Jesus unreservedly. And many people came to John wanting to make him something more than he was. They wanted to declare him the Messiah. They wanted to anoint him with power. And, and 
a lot of it is the same temptations of today. That, that you know, things don't really change that much. They offer John influence and fame and power and I'm guessing money and all the other things that could dissuade him from his mission. But he refused. He kept his focus on Jesus. Ultimately, he confronted some powerful people about their sin and lost his life. But in that life, he gave us an example of a guy, the Bible tells us, loved the light. And he considered nothing more worthwhile than telling others about the light. And we're going to see why as John continues. Verses 9 through 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, just like in our Genesis account, God is generous to all. That, that the true light, we're told, gives light to everyone. Now, a, line, a life aligned with God will benefit the most from Jesus' gift. But the truth is the entire world benefits from Jesus. Just in the U.S., most of our law is based on biblical standards, the things that, that the law considers right and wrong. Everyone is blessed by that. If you enjoy living in a nation that has schools and hospitals and has this ethic that everyone should have access to them, most of those institutions were started by Christians and wanting to give those gifts to mankind. That, that you know, God gives gifts to everyone, that, that intellect and personality, that, that advanced technology and advanced medicine, advanced the things that everyone in this world benefits from. That the light <clears throat> is given to everyone. Jesus is available to all. But we also see that same thing that we saw in Genesis, that God separates the dark from the light. There's a warning here about rejection of Christ. We're told that his own did not receive him. The Jews, God's chosen and covenant people that he had delivered over and over and over and over and over and over. Are you tired of me saying and over again? rejected him. The very people that God had saved rejected him. But, but, biblical buts, there's a big old beautiful but here. Biblical buts are the best, right? That, but to all that did receive him. Those are magical words that we should all take the time to appreciate. We are given the right it says, to be called children of God. There's this amazing things that, that happens upon belief in Jesus that you, in a heartbeat, go from a debt-ridden, filthy scumbag that in no way can make yourself right with God to a sibling of Jesus with full access to his righteousness. We're told that this light of creation illuminated the world and it separated day from night. That the true God, the true light Jesus, separates mankind from what the Bible calls children of wrath, from children of God. And then John finishes the section that we're, we're looking at this morning, verses 14 through 18. And this, like, encapsulates the Christmas season for me. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, 
This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. That when it says he came and dwelt among us, this baby that was born in Bethlehem that we celebrate at the Christmas time, you know, brought glory to, of God to earth. There is no more priest. There is no more temple. There is no more veil. There is no more separation between man and God. He came to us. And he brought grace and truth, we're told, through Jesus. And Moses brought us the law. And the law was given as a gift from God, but what it was given for is to expose our sin, to, to show us our need for this grace. Jesus instead brought the truth. See, some had chosen in Jesus' time to live by the law, believing that they could keep it and that it would save them. If, if they just you know, do all the right things and behave well enough, like God will be pleased with them. But the truth is more than the law. And the truth told us the law cannot save because it can't be kept. Everyone fails because everyone sins. So, Jen will have that first cross-reference here in a second. But in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the scribes were like the religious of the religious. They were the people that everyone looked at and said, they must please God because they, they kept all the rules. And not only did they keep all the rules, they invented a bunch of extra rules, and they kept them too. So they must be super pleasing to God. And this is what Jesus has to say in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside might also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness, so that outwardly you appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, religion says that you can impress God, just follow our rule book. Jesus brings the truth and says that's not how it works. See, religion is like this. It's like if you came over to my house for dinner, and, and I had this like, big, nice pot of savory stew had been simmering all day, and it smells wonderful, and, and you look at the pot, and you're like thinking to yourself, man, that pot is the cleanest pot I have ever seen in my life. Like, it doesn't look like it's ever been cooked in. It's like all polished like a mirror and glass, and so clean you actually mentioned something about it. Like, oh, yeah, no, we had to clean it up because that's the, we, when we're not cooking in it, we use that to pick the dog poop up out of the yard which probably would bother you a little bit. And you're like, wow, uh, how long did it take you to clean? Oh, I spent an hour cleaning the outside of it. Well, how long did it take you to clean the inside? Well, I didn't clean the inside. What, why do I need to clean the inside? Like, that should horrify you. And what Jesus is saying is that, that that's what religion does, is it puts this veneer on the outside. It makes the outside polished and clean and, and nice looking. But the Pharisees inside, their hearts were corrupt. 
that, that what they did was not to love God and love people. What it was was ultimately about themselves. It was being better than your fellow man, not serving your fellow man. That Jesus brings this truth that you on your own cannot please God. You owe such a huge debt. It's crushing. It can't be repaid. And Jesus brings us this truth, but it says he doesn't leave us there. That we all receive grace. That grace that was given to us on the cross that adopts you into the kingdom as children of God. That it's overflowing. You get grace upon grace. That this is what the Christmas season is about. This is what the baby coming is about, is truth and grace. And through this, Jesus makes God known by showing you the Father's love, grace, and truth. And our world is still, like in our Genesis account, a desolate, empty place full of darkness, spiritually speaking. And it sorely needs the grace and truth of the gospel and the light, the life that's brought by the light. So as we, as we kind of close out our texts and brings us to our application, our third landing spot is some 2,000 years after John wrote this account of what was going on with Jesus. And today it's my goal that everyone leaves here like connecting these passages to your lives in a way that, that brings that true joy and spirit of Christmas to you. That you're not burdened by all the things that this world can burden us with. And you're not fooled into thinking that there's some magical Christmas spirit that's brought about by giving someone the right gift or, or just acting a little nicer or, or buying Tiny Tim a turkey, right? You know, sometimes, sometimes in the Christian walk, we're in a good place. We're like John the Baptist, where we're close to God and we're energized by it and, and like we're hitting on all cylinders. And you don't need any pep talk this morning because you know, like you're just feeling it. And, and, and your, your spirit's alive with what God's done for you and, and you want to share that with people. You know, if that's you, man, ride that wave. And like John, testify about the light where you go because I will tell you that John was an inspiration and an encouragement to the brothers and sisters around him. And if you're in that place like he was, you will be that same thing to weary brothers and sisters in Christ. But for those of you that may be struggling in one way or another, I'll offer some observations uh, from the texts and also maybe some questions because <laughs> the truth is that like, a lot of times life is hard and we are struggling. And maybe you're struggling because you see the darkness all around you in this world, that you see the, the corruption and the difficulty and the injustice and the lying and the perversion and the foolishness all around you, and it's just wearing on you. You know, I'm going to remind you from our text that God's eternal. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and His promises are still valid. And remind you that God views time differently. And what can seem like ages to us <coughs> is, in fact, not that long to him. So we'll go ahead and throw that Second Peter scripture up there, please, Jen. So Peter tells us this in Second Peter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. I read that part earlier. This is the rest of it. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that, should all, but that all should come to repentance. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That if you're frustrated by the darkness that you see around you, remember that God's timelines aren't ours. And that his plans are working. Remember that the darkness did not grasp, did not understand, did not overcome the light in, the, in John's time. And it's not doing that now either. I'd be willing to bet if you were a Christian in Jesus' day, the day of the cross looked pretty dark. And it looked like darkness was winning. I don't think that we're living in worse times than that. And God had a plan then, and he still has a plan now, and it's still working. Additionally, from our text, as it talks about God being eternal, it uses the words, in the beginning, in the beginning. I'm going to remind you that our God is a God of beginnings. That, that maybe, maybe you're feeling that frustration and difficulty because God is, is starting something in you this Christmas season. Those things that you're seeing around you that you're burdened with, is the frustration you're feeling Ask yourself, is God calling you to pray for something specifically? Is God calling you to get involved somehow? Is God calling you to minister to the people that you see hurting? That there may be a reason that God's bringing that frustration into your life. Maybe he's just renewing your mind. So as Peter says, we can live a holy life in these difficult times. But there is hope in that eternal nature of God and his guaranteed victory over darkness. Other times... We struggle, I think, not because we see the darkness out there, but because we see the darkness that's in here. If, if you are a child of God, I, I'm willing to bet that you've dealt with some sin in your life, you're dealing with some sin in your life, and God is revealing those things to you. And sometimes we can look at ourselves and know our own sins and our shortcomings and those things that we just keep doing again and again. And, and we get to thinking, man... Why are we made this way? Why can we not overcome this sin that we struggle with? And we start thinking there's some, something fundamentally broken in us that's, that can't be fixed and it's discouraging. I want you to remember from our text today that our God is a creative God. He made you in his image, and that, because of that you have dignity, value, and worth. And also in his creativity, he loves wonderful variety. He made you. He knows you. He didn't screw up. He knew what he was doing. We're all imperfect with different personalities, gifts, and ideas. But that's the beauty of his creativity. And that's why we're brought together in the body of God that's called the church. That he made us all different because he wanted us to need each other. He designed us that way. We fit together like a puzzle. If you're in this church, you're not here by accident. Like your particular makeup and gifts, that's God's work in you. I'm also going to remind you that God's not done creating you. God is a tinkerer. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says this in chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you're discouraged, 
because you're still struggling with something, sometimes it's helpful to look back and see what God has already done in your life. Like, there's a truth about being a homeowner. Like, you have all these things that you want to fix up and do around the house. And after you live the place a couple of years and you've got some of it done, you just, all you see is what still needs to be done. And it's discouraging. And sometimes if you stop and remind yourself, hey, since we've lived here, we've done this and this and this and this. It changes how you perceive it, and that's true of us as well. You need to, to celebrate the work that's been done rather than focus on what's left to do sometimes. And trust God to complete that work in you. So as we think about God being creative, what has God created you to be? And how can you serve him and others in this? I guarantee with your unique makeup and gifting and personality, you can reach people that I never could because of a difference in personality, because of a difference in experience, because of a difference in, in how you view the world. Or maybe you're just not a flaming jerk like I am. Right? There's people in your life that you will be able to minister to that wouldn't listen to me. Ask, what is God creating in you now? You know, sometimes, oftentimes, every time probably, God uses difficulty in our lives to create something in us that we can use to serve others because we have a shared experience. We have a shared sin nature. We can encourage each other in that. So don't think that just because you're having difficulty that that's a lack of God in your life. And then remember that whether you're seeing the darkness in or out, God brings the light. That the light works on an interpersonal level. That's usually how we think about it. It moves someone from a child of wrath to a child of God. And there are people that God moves into the light every single day. But it's not just the conversion event that the light is useful for. See, the, we're told the light is the life of man because it exposes things. It shows what needs to be changed. And this light works also on an intrapersonal level inside of you. That, that God will sanctify you throughout your life. And it'll bring the light deeper and deeper into you as a person. You can and will change as you mature as a Christian. And God works on you in this process the Bible calls sanctification. So, as an example, I grew up in a logging family. And if, you, if anyone's fans of the Christmas story movie, there's this scene where, where the boy in the story, the, the main character, talks about his dad swearing. He says something to the effect of, like, like most artists works in paint or clay. My dad worked in swearing. Right? Like, like growing up in a logging family, uh, you get creative about your swearing. And I was... Probably, not probably, I was developing into a foul-mouthed young man. Um, and, and as I became a Christian, like, God convicted me of that. And it took a while to work that out of my normal speech. And through God's grace, I, it's not really something that, that I struggle with that much anymore, but it's still right there under the surface, right? And, and if... I am not diligent about it. It wouldn't be that hard to fall back into the habit, but it's God's continuous grace to me that, that I don't. And we can choose daily sometimes to, to let the light do its work or to cling to that darkness that's inside of us. But God will work that out. And, and as I studied his word, like as I told you earlier, it became clear to me that I was letting busyness and distraction and, and fatigue keep me from being close to God. That was my choice. 
It wasn't necessarily a conscious choice. I was just letting it happen because I wasn't thinking about it like I should have been. And I was allowing that distance to, to exist between me. No wonder I was feeling off. No wonder I was struggling coming to these passages. What darkness does God need to separate you from? And do you believe that he can do it? Because he can. And finally, some of us may be struggling in this season because we think that God cannot have meant me. That, that we think that there's something about my sin or there's something about who I am or there's something about what's been done to me that God cannot overcome. The Bible is clear. The passages we've read are clear that God is generous and this is for everyone. If we look back in John at verse, I believe it's verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into this world. Jesus is S-O-N son and S-U-N son. He's God's son and he gives us light. It shines for all people. And in verse 12, it reminds us, or John reminds us, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This offer that Jesus makes is for everyone. It doesn't matter who your family is or was. It's not of blood. It doesn't matter how much pharisaical effort you make to impress God. It's not the will of man that gets you there. It doesn't matter if there's other people in your life that really, really want this for you. It's not the will of man, but of God. God does the work, and it's available to everyone, all who will receive. We have this grace and truth that Jesus offers. No wonder our world didn't know him. It doesn't take much looking around to realize there's not a lot of grace, and there's not a lot of truth rolling around in our world separate from God. But it's the thing that our world desperately needs. It's the thing that we desperately need. And it's offered freely. So the key question when you come to the scriptures is, who is Jesus Christ for you? My next cross-reference is probably the most famous verse in the Bible. John, same author, chapter 3, verse 16. Most of you could probably recite this from heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, grace upon grace is waiting for all those that receive it and become children of God. Most of the time, a lot of this John 3 is discussed. This is where it stops. It goes on. There's a warning. There was a warning in our scripture. There's a warning here too. Starting in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works be exposed. So I'll go ahead and call the worship team up. I'm going to close with this. 
that in this Christmas season, where there's so much busyness and distraction and other things, and a lot of it good, but a lot of it overwhelming too, I'm going to offer you this. I coach wrestling. And most people who have never wrestled or been around the sport think it's a a sport for knuckle-dragging cavemen. It's all physical, and that's all there is to it. And, and it is true. It is, I would argue, if not the, it is one of the most physically demanding sports there is. But I will tell you this. It's, it's a very mentally difficult sport as well. It's a chess match. There's a bazillion moves. There's a bazillion counters. It's personal to you and your style and your strengths and weaknesses. And so I'm going to tell you what I tell my wrestlers and it's a line I stole from my coach years ago um, because a lot of times with this mental difficulty in sport, you can defeat yourself before you ever step on the mat. You can be like, oh, I'm tired. Oh, I'm not that good. Oh, that guy looks strong. Oh, he went to state last year. And before you are ever out there, you've, you've defeated yourself. And the phrase I'm going to borrow from my coach is you've got to get your mind right. That, that there's a difference in shift in everything that happens just by focusing on the right things. As Christians, especially in a busy season, it's easy to get our mind on the wrong things, to get like I was busy, distracted, tired. See, our enemy doesn't need to take us off the field. He just needs to make us ineffective. And that's what can happen a lot of times in these seasons. They're supposed to be full of blessing and joy that we don't get our minds right. Like that wrestler who's in the wrong mental space, we look at our enemy and we say, I'm tired. I'm not that good. Man, the enemy looks strong. Man, he went to state doing this to people for the last couple thousand years. And we we put our minds in this wrong place. And so I I hope to encourage you this morning to remind you from our, our text that God is eternal. He is always been there for us, and he always will be. That our God is creative, and he knows his creation, and he knows what's good for it, including you. That our God brings the light, and that exposing light brings growth and warmth and joy. That our God is generous to all. That this message of hope that is around Christmas is for everyone. And that God separates the light from the dark, and it is for our good that he orders his creation this way. This is a season of hope because our God is a God of hope. So I'm going to leave you at the end of our text because I just think this so beautifully captures the Christmas season. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So as you go forth this morning, if you have children downstairs, please go get them. If you don't have children, they're not for you. Um, (laughs) Stay away. But we will, you know, part of the beauty of what God does in bringing us together as a family is that when you're struggling, when you're, when you're, you know, just need some help, um, that's what your brothers and sisters are for. So we'll have some faithful brothers and sisters up here by the subwoofers to pray with you after the service. If you have something that you need prayer for, or even something you just want to praise God for and share it 
you know, they'd be happy to serve you in that way. But go forth and have a blessed week. And I hope you can join us for our Christmas Eve service here uh, at the end of the week. So thank you.